Hey listeners, I recently launched an ad-free Serial Napper feed so that you can enjoy the podcast without interruptions. Elevate your Serial Napper listening experience by joining my Patreon community and get yourself an ad-free feed on Spotify. For just $2 a month, you can become a member today and unlock ad-free episodes while still supporting the podcast. It's super easy. Just visit Serial Napper on your Spotify app and click the button at the top that says exclusive episodes for subscribers. Don't use Spotify for your listening? No problem. Just visit patreon.com slash Serial Napper to get your episodes ad-free and enjoy uninterrupted storytelling while you get your naps in. Mother's Day is almost here. Have you found that truly special sentimental gift for your mom yet? Don't worry, I got you. MyLifeInABook.com is a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Here's how it works. Every week, MyLifeInABook.com will send her a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about her life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or use their voice-to-text feature And MyLifeInABook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges that she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and your children can treasure forever. Your mom has given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. I loved this idea so much that I've started my own My Life in a Book for my children to have. The thought of my son and daughter being able to learn about my life story as they grow into their own adulthood is truly special. It's been an enjoyable journey of self-reflection for me too, with questions like, which one event made the greatest impact on your life? It's brought back memories I didn't even know I had. I love it, and I know your mother will too. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use code SERIALNAPPER for 10% off today. Hey everyone, konnichiwa, Nikki Young here, back with my true crime podcast series, Serial Napper. I hope you guys enjoyed my special series of spooky episodes for the month of October. We're now back with our regular scheduled programming. Tonight, I'm offering you an ad-free episode. This is sort of a sneak peek preview of what my newly launched Patreon will be offering. So from now on, I will be doing five episodes each month that include ads because, hey, I gotta pay the bills, keep the lights on. Additionally, I'll be doing two ad-free episodes every month that are available to my Patreon subscribers. You can join my Patreon for as little as $2 a month and get the bonus ad-free episodes for as little as $4 a month. It's totally up to you and, of course, optional. I always appreciate your support either way. So let's get into it. 
I posted a little tidbit about this horrible, horrible human being over on my Facebook page and I had a lot of reactions because she is a vile human being. So here we are. This is a particularly graphic case. So if you have a weak stomach, it may be best to skip this one and I'll see you next time. Also, if you're eating, stop. Just stop. (laughs) I made the mistake of doing the research for this one while I was eating and yeah, big mistake. Catherine Knight was the first Australian woman to be sentenced to life imprisonment without parole. She was dubbed the cannibal housewife, and I'm sure you can guess why. This story will turn your stomach. It was 6 a.m., a cold February day in the year 2000. A neighbor of John Price observed that his car was still in the driveway, which was very unusual for him. And when he didn't arrive for work that morning, an employer sent a colleague to see what was up, what was wrong. Both the neighbor and the worker tried knocking on Price's bedroom window to wake him, but they alerted police after noticing that there was blood on the front door. Police arrived at 8 a.m. As they walked through the home to investigate, they were confronted with a pool of blood in the hallway of the house. There was blood spatter and smears found throughout the entire house. Most terrifying of all was what looked like a human pelt hanging from the doorway. In the lounge room, police found a headless body, and in the bedroom was a comatose woman. It was Catherine Knight, who had taken a numerous amount of pills and had to be dragged out of the residence to be questioned about what had happened. The following account is the complete report by crime scene investigator, Detective Senior Constable Peter Anthony Musio, who was the first officer into the home of Catherine Knight and her boyfriend, David Price. We're about to set the horrific scene that they encountered, so listen closely. I've cut out some of the parts just to make it more clear and concise. About 10 a.m. Wednesday, the 1st of March, 2000, in company with Detective Sergeant Neil Raymond, I attended the premise at 84 St. Andrew Street, Aberdeen, in relation to an alleged homicide. There, I spoke to a number of police, including Duty Officer Graham Furlonger, Detective Sergeant Bob Wells, and Senior Constable Michael Prentice. The premises is a single-story, three-bedroom dwelling which faces generally south onto St. Andrew Street. The premises was built towards the eastern side of the block, leaving a grassed area on the western side where three vehicles were parked. These vehicles consisted of a white Toyota four-wheel drive and a white Ford sedan and a white Toyota Land Cruiser utility. There was also a brick barbecue against the eastern boundary. The dwelling had a full-length veranda across the southern side and a smaller veranda central to the rear of the premises. My attention was drawn to a piece of cooked meat on the rear lawn in front of the white Ford sedan. I made an examination of this piece of meat and collected it for further testing. During my examination, I took a series of photographs of the premises and the piece of cooked meat on the lawn. I entered the premises to conduct my cursory examination with Detective Sergeant Raymond. I walked in, through the rear door, and into the kitchen. 
Once inside the kitchen, I saw a large section of what appeared to be human skin hanging from the top of the doorway leading into the lounge room. This piece of skin extended from the top of the doorway right to the floor and appeared to be an entire human skin. Looking through this doorway into the lounge room, I could see a headless and skinless human body. I walked east along the hallway and looked into the entry foyer and saw an extreme amount of blood pooled on the floor. There was also a large amount of blood smearing over the eastern wall of entry. I walked further east, along the hallway, and noticed some blood staining leading from the main bedroom. In this bedroom, I noticed more blood staining, however, only moderate amounts. The rear door of the premises opens into the laundry. Off the western side of this is the kitchen dining room. The laundry contained a stainless steel tub in the northeast corner and a washing machine further south along the eastern wall. On the eastern wall of the laundry was a cavity sliding door that gave access to the dining room and kitchen. The room was divided into two sections with the kitchen being western end and the dining room being the eastern end. The dining room contained a wood and steel dining room table which had three matching seats placed around it. There were items of clothing draped over the backs of each of the three chairs. On the dining room table was a tool bag, some clothing, a small blue folder, an electronic toy gorilla, and some prescription medicine boxes. As mentioned earlier, I saw what appeared to be a complete human skin, or pelt, hanging from the top of the door separating the dining room and the lounge room. On closer examination, I could distinguish black curly hair at the top, a nose, and part of the mouth and ear. About halfway down the pelt, I could see a clump of short black curly hair consistent with pubic hair. I could not recognize any other particular features as it continued to the floor. The edges of the pelt were incised, indicating to me that it had been removed with a sharp instrument. There were also a number of distinct stab wounds to the pelt, about a meter down from the top. The pelt was attached to the architrave by a stainless steel meat hook. The hook was pierced through the top of the head area of the pelt and then hooked over the architrave on the lounge room side of the door. The skin appeared to vary in thickness from approximately 1 to 4 centimeters. I noticed a blood trail leading from the lounge room into the kitchen towards the kitchen cooktop in the vicinity of the aluminum boiler. The boiler was on the right side rear element which was, at the time, turned off. When I lifted the lid to the boiler, I noticed it was warm to touch. The pot was full of liquid, and on the surface, I could identify a skinned human head and a number of cooked vegetables. On the northern side of the aluminum boiler, I saw a baking dish, which was sitting across the right front side element. Inside the baking dish, I saw an amount of liquid and the remains of baked vegetables. 
Just to the right or northern side of the cooktop, I saw two prepared meals. Each of the meals consisted of two pieces of cooked meat, baked potato, baked pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy. Underneath each of the meals was a torn section of kitchen paper with a name written on it. The word Becky was written in blue ink on one of the pieces, while the word Jonathan was on the other. The pieces of meat that appeared on the plates were similar to the pieces I collected from the rear lawn. On the section of the kitchen bench across the northern wall were a number of items of interest. On the western end of the bench, I saw a green electric jug with blood staining about the handle. In the sink, I saw an orange-colored vegetable peeler and the vegetable peelings from potato, pumpkin, zucchini, and onion. On the eastern side of the sink, I saw a cream-colored microwave dish containing cooked cabbage leaves and a clear liquid. In front of the microwave dish, I saw a brown-colored coffee cup that was sitting on a wooden cutting board. Inside the coffee cup was a teaspoon and a small quantity of thick brown liquid, similar to gravy. My family is getting ready to make a big move across the ocean to a place where English isn't the spoken language. This isn't my first rodeo, so I'm making sure I'm fully prepared by learning the language ahead of time. Sure, I know I can use an app once I get there, but you'd be shocked by how much gets lost in translation. I want to talk like a local, which is why I'm excited to use Rosetta Stone, the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone truly immerses you in the language you want to learn and has been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, and more. Rosetta Stone helps you to think in the language you're learning using an intuitive process that's designed for long-term retention. Their built-in true accent feature gives you feedback on your pronunciation so that you're easily understood by native speakers. They have convenient desktop and app options, so you can learn on the go, and they offer a lifetime membership that includes all 25 languages at an incredible value. And now you can save even more with 50% off. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Serial Napper listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Sunnier, warmer days are almost here. Why not get a head start on looking and feeling your best this summer by trying something new like Factors No Prep, No Mess meals that are ready to eat in just two minutes? Get a helping hand to meet your wellness goals with Factors chef-crafted meals that include different nutritional options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Healthy meal planning has never looked so good with Factors Fresh, Never Frozen meals that are also dietitian approved. No matter how busy you are, 
Factor can help kickstart and maintain a new healthy routine by making it easy to enjoy nutritious meals on the go. Plus, you'll never get bored eating the same thing every day because they offer 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week. We're talking restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon because eating healthy doesn't have to be boring. Personally, I love not having to overthink what I'm going to eat every single day because that's half the battle. And I don't have to bother with shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. But the best part is, these meals are delicious with ingredients you can trust. Crush your wellness goals this May. Head to factormeals.com slash napper50 and use code napper50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code NAPPER50 at factormeals.com slash NAPPER50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. There was also the residue of gravy-type substance on the cutting board. Just to the right of the cutting board was a yellow-handled swibbo knife and two forks. The handle of the knife was bloodstained. I noticed blood staining to the fridge on both the handle of the door to the fridge section and the eastern side of the unit. The staining to the door handle contained some ridge structure and was in a position consistent with opening the door with bloodied hands. There were also smears on the eastern face of the fridge and lowered down, staining from droplets of blood that had come in contact with this surface. So, alright, did you get all of that? I feel horrible for the police and crime scene investigators who had to witness this crazy, disgusting, mortifying, horrible scene. Let's recap. John Price was apparently dead, skinned, cut up into pieces. His girlfriend, Catherine Knight, was found in the home, passed out, doped up on pills, and had to be carried out of the home. Clearly, she was suspect number one, but... What led to this? How did all of this happen? Let's talk. Catherine Mary Knight was born on October 24th in Aberdeen in New South Wales. She was the younger of a set of twins. Her father, Ken, was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation to rape her mother up to 10 times a day. That's what was reported at least. Her mother, Barbara, in turn often told her daughters very intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated sex and men. Now, it was said that later in life, when Catherine complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to take part in a sex act that she didn't want to do, her mother, Barbara, told her to, quote-unquote, put up with it and stop complaining. I mean, if you're trying to raise a really damaged female, this is how you do it. Catherine claimed that she was frequently sexually abused by several members of her family, which continued until she was 11, and therapists seemed to back this story up. Even with such a tumultuous upbringing and all of the toxic behavior and abuse happening in her life, Catherine was, by all accounts, 
pleasant girl. When she attended Muswellbrook High School, she actually became a loner, and her classmates remember her as a bully who stood over smaller children. She actually assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who was found to have acted in self-defense. Apparently, this behavior only happened when Catherine had these random fits of absolute rage where she couldn't control herself. By contrast, when not in this rage, she was an absolute model student and she often earned awards for her good behavior. After she left school at only 15 years old, she went to start what she referred to as her dream job. She was working cutting up animal organs and insides, entrails at the local butcher. At home, she actually hung the knives that she earned at her job over her bed so that they would, quote unquote, always be handy if I needed them. As you can imagine, Catherine would go on to have some really horrible and toxic relationships with partners before ever meeting John Price. Her first husband was David Kellett, who she first met after a night of drinking. Apparently, she completely dominated him, and the pair married in 1974 at her request, of course, with the couple arriving at the service on her motorcycle with a very intoxicated groom driving. As soon as they arrived, Catherine's mother, Barbara, gave the groom, David, some advice. The old girl said to me, watch out. You better watch this one or she'll fucking kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're fucked. Don't ever think of playing up on her. She'll fucking kill you. Ah yes, words of wisdom from the mother of the bride. On their wedding night, Catherine made true on those words and she tried to strangle him. She later explained it was because he fell asleep after only having sex three times. Poor girl. The marriage was particularly violent and on one occasion, a very heavily pregnant Catherine burned all of his clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan, simply because he had arrived home late from a darts competition. David decided he'd had enough and he fled for his life. He eventually collapsed in a neighbor's house and he was later treated for a very badly fractured skull. Police wanted to charge Catherine, but being the little manipulator that she was, she was able to talk David into dropping the charges. In May of 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ann, David left Catherine for another woman, apparently unable to cope with her possessive violent behavior. The following day, Catherine was seen pushing her new baby in a stroller down Main Street, violently throwing it from side to side. Someone obviously spotted her and reported her, and she was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. After being released, Catherine clearly wasn't any better. She placed her two-month-old daughter, Melissa, on a railway line shortly before the train was due. Then she left, she stole an axe, she went to town, and she threatened to kill several people. Thankfully, there was a man around who found and rescued Melissa, and by his account and all other accounts, this happened only minutes before the train passed. 
So Catherine was again arrested and taken to St. Elmo's Hospital. But apparently she made this miraculously amazing recovery. She signed herself out the following day and was totally fine. I don't know how someone does that after leaving their baby on a railway train track. I don't get it, but okay. A few days later, Catherine slashed the face of a woman with one of her knives and demanded that this woman drive her to Queensland to find her former husband, David. Remember, he had run away with another woman. Now, this woman managed to escape after they stopped at a service station. But by the time police arrived, Catherine had taken another little boy hostage and was threatening him with a knife. She was disarmed when police attacked her with brooms. And this time she was admitted to the Morissette Psychiatric Hospital. Now, when police informed David of the incident... He actually decided he would leave his girlfriend and would go back and support his wife. So he moved back to Aberdeen to be with Catherine. But the reunion turned out to be stormier than ever, with Catherine regularly flying into violent rages over nothing in particular. She would assault her husband with her fists and basically kitchen appliances and anything else that she could get her hands on. Catherine was released on August 9, 1976, into the care of her mother-in-law, and along with David, they moved to Woodbridge, which was a suburb of Brisbane, and she obtained a job at the Dinmore Meatworks, another butchery. On March 6, 1980, they had another daughter, Natasha Marie. Four years later, in 1984, Catherine decided that she was pretty much over David. She wanted something new, and so she moved in with her parents in Aberdeen. Then she decided to rent her own house nearby. Although she returned to work at the butcher, she ended up injuring her back, so she was able to leave her job and went on a disability pension. Holy crap, guys, this is literally husband number one, and we aren't even close to her meeting John, and she's already such a freaking hot mess. I have no idea how this woman wasn't locked up right away to keep the public safe, but I digress. Let's continue. All right, relationship number two. Catherine met 38-year-old minor David Saunders in 1986, you know, the good old days, the year I was born. A few months later, he moved in with her and her two daughters, although he decided he wanted to keep his old apartment. Catherine soon became jealous, wondering where he was and what he was doing, especially with this apartment that he had on his own. I think we can see a very clear pattern here. You know, she's kind of a crazy, jealous bitch, so David moved out and back into his own apartment and Catherine came begging, 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 begging for him to come back to her. Now, David really didn't want to deal with her shit, so Catherine decided she had to take things to a whole new level. And there's a trigger warning here for those who love animals. Hi, that's me. And I want to punch this lady in the throat, to be honest with you. In May 1987, while she was trying to get David back, she cut the throat of his two-month-old dingle puppy in front of him, in front of him, for no more reason than as an example of what would happen if he ever had an affair. Then she went on to knock him unconscious with a frying pan. I guess this apparently worked because... 
They continued their relationship, and she even got pregnant by him. In June 1988, she gave birth to her third daughter, Sarah, which prompted David Saunders to put a deposit in a house, which Catherine paid off when her workers' compensation came through in 1989. I guess they decided that they would all just move into this house and be one happy family. Catherine went on to decorate the house with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, pitchforks, just everything. I mean, I'm all for spooky, creepy decor, but if you're a legit psycho, like, this, this isn't cute. Things escalated even further after an argument where she hit David in the face with an iron before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. She cut up all of his clothing like an absolute psycho, and David was so afraid of her, he decided it was time to go into hiding. He basically disappeared. Catherine tried to find him, but no one would say where he was. His friends were pretty much protecting him. Several months later, he did return to see his daughter, and he found out that Catherine had actually gone to the police and tried to flip the script. She told the police that she was afraid of him, he was violent, and they had issued her with an apprehended violence order, an AVO, um, against him. So he appeared to be the perpetrator in the eyes of the police. Now, relationship number three. In 1990, Catherine became pregnant by a 43-year-old former butchery shop co-worker named John Chillingworth, and she gave birth the following year to a little boy named Eric. Their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man that she had been having an affair with for some time, John Price. So now we are on to the relationship of John Price and the very unfortunate demise that he would meet at the hands of Catherine Knight. Oh, John Price, you poor thing. You had no idea what was coming to you. John Price was the father of three children when he met Catherine. Initially, their relationship was all roses and sunshine, and his two kids loved her. John was well aware of Catherine's violent reputation and her history, but he still allowed her to move into his home in 1995. But unfortunately, things quickly soured when John and Catherine argued over his refusal to marry her. And in retaliation, Catherine videotaped items that he had stolen from work and sent the tape to his boss. Although they were items that were out-of-date medical kits, they were literally first aid kits that the company was throwing away and he had decided to take home. John was fired from his job, a job that he had for 17 years. John was pissed, as you can imagine, and that same day, he kicked her out and she returned to her own home while news of what she had done spread through the town. This wasn't the end of things, though. A few months later, John restarted the relationship. Clearly, Catherine was a manipulator and, I don't know, a blood-sucking piece of crap. So they continued their relationship, although John refused to allow her to move back in with him. 
the fighting became even more frequent and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him while they were together. On February 27th, just two days before the fatal attack, the couple had a violent dispute. John fled, taking refuge with a friend who lived nearby. He alleged that Catherine had menaced him with a butcher's knife, one of the tools of her trade as a butcher. Police interviewed both Catherine and John, but conflicting stories left the case unresolved. On the morning of his last day alive, John Price sought a protective order against Catherine Knight, but unfortunately, it was a little too late. On the day of the murder, she left her two younger children with her adult daughter. The slaughter of John Price was premeditated and very much planned, despite what she would go on to say later. 16 months before the murder, she actually told her daughter, I told him if he took me back this time, it was to the death. And if I kill Pricey, I'll kill myself after it. She made a very similar claim to her brother five months before the murder, but I guess this time she decided suicide wasn't on the table. She said, I'm going to kill Pricey and I'm going to get away with it. I'll get away with it because I'll make out I'm mad. The night where everything went down, John returned from home to find his house empty. Thankfully, Catherine only sent the kids to a sleepover and she didn't hurt them, but it was weird that they weren't home and John was scared, so he went to a neighbor's home. Eventually, when, you know, things kind of calmed down and he thought it was okay to go back, he went home, he showered, and he went right to bed. Catherine used this time to break in, also shower, and wake him up to have sex with him. At some point during the night, Catherine stabbed John with a butcher's knife. He got up and he tried to crawl to his escape, but he wasn't successful and he died from blood loss. I mean, at least he was dead when all of this really insane, horrible things happened to him. It was after that Catherine hung his body up in the kitchen, she skinned him, she beheaded him, and she cooked him into a stew. She then set the table with two bowls of stew for both of John Price's children. That's right, Catherine had decapitated John. She cooked parts of his body, serving up the meat with baked potato, pumpkin, beetroot, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash, and gravy in two settings at the dinner table, along with notes beside each plate, each having the name of one of John's children on it. She was preparing to serve his body parts to his children. A third meal was thrown on the back lawn for unknown reasons. It's actually speculated that she tried to eat it herself, but she just couldn't go through with it. John's head was found in a pot with vegetables. The pot was still warm, indicating that the cooking had taken place in the early morning. Sometime later, Catherine arranged the body with the left arm draped over an empty 1.25 liter soft drink bottle with the legs crossed. This was claimed later in court to be an act of defilement, demonstrating Catherine's contempt for John. She also had left a handwritten note on top of a photograph of John. It was bloodstained and covered with small pieces of flesh. And it read, Time got you back, Jonathan, for raping my daughter. 
You go to Beck for Ross for Little John. Now play with Little John's dick, John Price. Yeah, clearly very educated. Um, <laughs> not. Thankfully, the children never made it back in time for dinner. So they were not subjected to the absolute torture of being served their own father for dinner. Catherine was arrested the day after the murder, and in her interview with police, she claimed that she basically didn't remember anything. She told police, The last time I recall was, I don't know about your dates, but I went inside and watched a bit of TV. The psychiatrists who assessed her didn't believe a word that she said, and she was found to be legally fit to stand trial. Now, for some odd reason, Catherine Knight pleaded not guilty in her trial, which began in October 2001. But the graphic evidence caused serious distress to jurors, and it resulted in many of them dropping out of the trial altogether. So, Catherine Knight decided to change her plea to guilty, and by the end of the trial, the judge sentenced her to life in prison without parole, which was a first for an Australian woman. In 2006, she tried to appeal the decision, saying the punishment was harsher than her crime. But, of course, the judge dismissed the appeal, saying the murder was inhumane and appalling beyond belief. I mean, what the fuck is she on? To this day, Catherine Knight maintains that all she recalls of that night is that they had good sex, they both climaxed, and then she remembers that John got out of bed to go for a pee, and she watched him come back into the bedroom. After that, she presumes that she fell asleep, and that was that. Most people believe that, you know, she ate part of John Price and eventually found what she did so unbearable that she still to this day chooses to block it out of her mind. <sighs> okay, that's it for me tonight. Excuse me while I go vomit my guts out. This is a sneak peek of what I'm offering you twice a month ad-free if you choose to become a Patreon. Memberships start at just $2 a month, so go check it out. It's patreon.com slash serial napper. And I'll have the link in my show notes if you're interested. If not, that's okay. It's cool. It's cool. I still appreciate you listening. If you want to reach out, you can find me on Facebook at Serial Napper. You can also search for me on Apple or Spotify. I'm on all the main podcasting apps. Check me out on Twitter at Serial underscore Napper. Or I'm on YouTube, Nikki Young, Serial Napper, all one word. Head on over on whatever app you're listening to me on and leave me a review if you don't mind. Like I said, I always appreciate your support. Okay, until next time, don't be a Dahmer. Bye. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to fifteen hundred dollars back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet 
BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. 21 plus and present in Ohio, subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM Northfield Park. I'm Dean. I'm the dad. I'm Laura. I'm the mom. And I'm Crystalyn. I'm the daughter. And together we are... Family Plot! The Family Plot Podcast, a show where we discuss history, folklore, true crime, and the paranormal. Minus all the oogie bits. We are PG-13. I'm almost 15 now. Don't ruin the commercial. Do catch us looking into special topics like the origins of fairy tales. Sherlock Holmes. Trial of Dr. Hyde and Mr. Swope. Find out who Dad Man Crush is. Or what happens in Krista's Corner. But behave you two. So come be a part of the fam. Available on Google, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Family Plot Podcast. Bye!